We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. And welcome to the Moose and Rooms podcast. This is episode 259 of The Pod alongside Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso, and we told you it was coming. Mm-hmm. And it's here. We're here. It's baseball season. It's literally just baseball season. Uh, College World Series was fun. That's You're gone. excited for the John Deere. NBA Finals was fun. That's gone. Stanley Cup Final. That's gone. Super jacked up for the John Deere. I just assume every year that Zach Johnson's going to win it. That's golf talk here on the Moose and Rooms podcast because you forget we Those are a golf this week. pod. Uh, we're going to do a little Stanley Cup recap here. We're going to talk about the sad White Sox. NBA offseason is already simmering, percolating, if you will. We do have a mailbag question from a uh, friend of the podcast, Rob Gallick, who keeps this thing rolling. All right. He really does. You keep us rolling. He's going to get an AP tag soon. We're, we're going to, yeah, a producer tag, uh, uh, some sort AP. of gift, some sort of, yeah, some sort of uh, accolade will be sent his way because. Yeah. Just to to prove to the listenership that you, too, could be an integral part of this pod if you send us mailbags, if you send us questions, if you send us buy or sells, if you send us thought-provoking things to get us through the dog days of summer, which we just stepped our foot into. But first and foremost, Matt Rooney, how are you? You know, I'm I'm doing well. Like I I told you before, I'm playing playing hurt today, recovering from a little bit of a sinus infection. That's okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to power through this, but I actually knowing that now that Rob's getting the tag and maybe a gift or whatever, I actually have a mailbag question that I just thought of now. Um, okay. recap your, your experience at the travelers, saw some social media, saw you getting Xander doing, you know, strutting off the tee box there. You, you were at the travelers for a little bit this weekend. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, um, walk the final six holes of Rory's Thursday, 62 with him. Oh yeah. Uh, wow. Unbelievable. What a roller coaster. Um, Xander was the group in front of him. So I was kind of like jumping out in front and watching Xander come through, Ricky, uh, Rory come through, Xander come through, Rory come through. So it was a lot of fun to walk those eight holes. And you know me, when I was flying solo, uh, Shelby was working. So flying solo, press pass, but they don't give the under the ropes passes to, they, they have essentially five under the ropes passes a day and they give them to full time tour members or like, Rory's wife like that's who gets under the ropes pass so I wasn't getting an under the ropes pass but I'm walking with Rory um, you know being in a couple spots I'm not supposed to be uh, standing six feet from him on the ninth tee which was his 18th hole of the day like standing on the tee box with the group and I just kind of like looked like I was supposed to be there. Had a nice vest, like a golf mm. vest on. Um, the tire is big for that. Uh, Hinsdale Golf Club hat pulled down low. Like I looked like I was supposed to be under the ropes. Yeah. Like all I was missing was an earpiece. So I get away with it with Rory. Should have brought like, yours oh. from work. Um, say it again. Should have brought your IFB from work. Well, I know. That's, I, I've told you, just pop in the IFB, see how far you can get. That, that's uh, that's an age-old it's an age-old strategy, but Hold I digress. Watch Ricky, watch Rory do his thing. Um, fantastic day, big ovation. I'm standing greenside under the ropes um, when he makes the putt on 18 for his 62. Uh, I looked on at my phone. Spieth, Scheffler, and ZJ had just teed off. They're on like the third or fourth hole of the day. So I go, I get one hole out in front of him. I go to five. I catch them on five. I'm starting to do the same thing. Get to certain spots. But um, bigger crowd later in the day, 
didn't feel like I could get away with what I could get away with. So I started chatting with the police officer that's walking with the group, you know, marquee groups, get a couple cops with them. And I'm just BSing with the cop. He had watched, was a fan of CBS Sports HQ. I'm not sure he knew who I was specifically. He was like, yeah, you guys do a great job, this and that. And um, how can he, he not goes, know you? He, he was being cordial. It just didn't, it wasn't like, Oh my God, it's, it's him. Um, but we're BSing. And he's like, you want to walk with me? I was like, I don't have the under the, I don't have an under, under the rope sticker. He goes, he goes, I, he essentially says like, you know, I make the under the, I am the under the rope. Sticker. I, I'm your, I'm your he, sticker, buddy. Exactly. He lifts up the ropes and I walked the last three hours uh, of, of Jordan, Scotty and CJ's round under the ropes, like legit walking the fairways, not the fairways, but like 10 feet off the fairways watching these guys play. So it was a really, really cool um, experience, not just to be under the ropes, but to uh, observe it from that close. Like Scotty chipped in from like an impossible spot. I believe it was on like the seventh hole and just to be like standing a few feet from him and watching, watching them go through their process watching a lot like you know the power is breathtaking the ball striking is breathtaking mm-hmm. but the imagination and the dispersion around the greens is what always gets me when you're close to those guys um they're not they're giving themselves the up and down look every time unless there is no option they have to throw one way out right or left like they're gonna have a really makeable look at par regardless like regardless of what the situation is greenside they give themselves looks and i think that's where like the biggest difference for me is it was very it was a very interesting um it was a very interesting case study from up close. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, it's kind of wild. Like, no matter where they are around the green, unless they're absolutely, you know, not to uh, needle Sahith Tagala here, but, like, unless they're, like, up against the lip in a bunker on 18 or, like, absolutely burying, you know, fried egg. Like, these guys, they're so good around the green that they're always going to give themselves not necessarily, like, the most makeable putt, but, like, a 15 to 20 footer at worst look at, you know, for their up and down, which is for them a very makeable putt. Odds are they're probably going to be within seven feet or so. It's that for me. And then I will never forget the like being at Coghill the first time I went and saw, uh, saw a pro tournament, the, the old Western Open, mm-hmm. and seeing the ball flight of these guys off the tee. It's ridiculous. How, not like ours are just kind of like, we still hit drivers high, but just kind of like a straight, like, you know, straight up and straight down. They have like, kind of like the the arc it's like it starts out low and then just keeps getting higher keeps getting higher and just it, it's like w- they're playing a different game and it's, it's, it's a mixture really, of it's, it's a amazing mixture of two things it's a mixture of two things with the driver and the iron uh, driver specifically everybody nowadays and you can really see it when you're out there it's an upward angle of attack they're yeah. they're staying behind the ball and the contact point with the ball is on the first couple let's say frames, if you're looking at it on a video, first couple frames of your upswing is where they're hitting the ball. Just it, Rory's launch is crazy. That, that same hole where I was standing on the tee box with him, it was the day he took the crazy line, like directly at the green over the freaking yeah. houses. Like it, I love his the, aggressive lines. The shot, the, tracer, the shot tracer of it, the decision, like the whole thing was crazy to watch. Like, where is he aiming? And just absolutely skies one over a neighborhood and lands it like 30 yards short of the green. It was unbelievable. But um, no, really cool experience. And it was also getting to experience that on a course where, you know, if we were to go out there and play TPC River Highlands, it's a, it's a test. Like that's going to challenge us. There's a lot of trouble out there, but just the way that they cut off certain parts of the course, like that trouble doesn't exist because I don't miss it over there type thing. Um, That's why they can score so low at tournaments like the travelers at tournaments, like, um, you know, where, where birdie is 
par where birdie is gettable in almost yeah, every, every scenario um, to watch them be green light go at a place like that was very, very cool. See people, how hard was that? I just, I it just popped in my head right there and that was a great mailbag and it took up, you know, a good chunk of our <laughs> podcast. How about that? Now, now your turn. Now it's your turn. Everyone except Rob, you're doing a great job. That's it. Um, what should we move on to? What do you want to do? Stanley Cup. Let's close, yeah, let's close the book on the Stanley Cup. Uh, the party has just begun in the greater Colorado area with the avalanche finally slaying the beast. Tampa Bay can't make it three straight. Um, the, the credentials of a dynasty now come into question. I still think, you know, you go to three straight, you win two of them. It's pretty dynastic, especially in the yeah. salary cap era. But just from what we saw down the stretch um, in those last couple of matchups those last couple of games um what really stood out to you matt because for me it was the storyline of like who is going to be able to withstand the other team's game and it got Mm -hmm. to a point where like colorado wasn't scoring six a night eight a night like they were playing they were playing tampa bay's game but they still they figured it out still that's what was most impressive to me that's how good colorado was yeah for the first and you said that like to to your credit you said that i think was last week on the pod is like Mm -hmm. colorado is going to figure colorado is going to be able to adapt later in the series and that's exactly what happened they are that good of a team and they're that fast of a team that they can kind of adjust to whatever game you want to play. And I think we saw that we saw in games one and two, they played their game and they outplayed Tampa. The, the, you know, the first one had seven goals in that overtime winner. The next one, they obviously had seven goals, but they scored them all by themselves. Um, for me, games four and six, I just thought Colorado played, Colorado played the perfect road game that you would expect from a Tampa Bay. Now Tampa Bay kind of played the perfect road game in game five, but weathered the storm early, you know, knew that Tampa was going to come out flying, give them their best shot in both games, five and games four and game six. They did that. And Colorado was able to weather the storm early. Darcy Kemper played well. And then they made their adjustments. Once that initial wave died down, Colorado kind of took over and was just Mm -hmm. a team again. And I, I, it's hard for me to, believe that I'm still impressed by Colorado's speed this late in the year and having watched them so much as as much as we have, but like the way they use their speed in game six defensively to Mm -hmm. just give Tampa absolutely no room um, in the offensive zone. They didn't really give them any looks. They they were closing speed on guys with pucks was amazing. Forecheck was really good. Getting to pucks was amazing. There was always puck battles in the corner. Just the, um, what Colorado did, throughout the regular season offensively was like unbelievable. Wow. These guys are amazing. They're high flying. Can they win the Stanley cup, you know, winning every game six to four, we'll see. Uh They completely didn't have to do that. They changed their game and said, we're still better than you doing it this way, doing it your way. And they're, they're here to stay for quite some time. I think we might see that exact matchup, if not next year, sometime soon, but Man, like Colorado is a plus 500 favorite to win the Stanley Cup next year, and I wouldn't bet against that right now. They're so good. Yeah, they're good. They're young. Um, they are, you know, they are new hockey. Not to not to paint too broadly here, but like the ability to score eight goals in a night. Um, the young, talented star might be. We have like we have these this handful of guys, and I I, I hesitate to say handful, but like. Um, McKinnon, uh, McDavid, like there are guys who extrapolate 
the skill set out over a 15, 20 year career. And you're talking about Mount Rushmore guys. Like mm-hmm. I think it's like not crazy to say that it's sort of like the Shohei Otani paradox we're currently in is like, is that one of the 20 greatest players of all time? Like, are we allowed to say that yet? Because if he does this for 10, 15 years, it is undoubtedly that, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's an interesting spot that the game's in right now. And it feels like, I don't know. It feels like, hockey's moment is always the playoffs because it's we talk about it the intensity the shift of momentum it's all it's a beautiful product for tv even for the layman fan mm-hmm. um i and think like this that, playoffs especially i think was one of the top play like, is one of the best playoffs i can remember seeing from round from game one round one to game six of the stanley cup final the point, no, the point I'm trying to make here is that maybe Colorado is the perfect team for the NHL. And I don't know that they'll do this, but for the NHL to latch onto, to put at the forefront, to say, mm-hmm. Hey, look at, look at what our league is right now. Cause you know, we talked about Tampa Bay being a hard sell for as interesting and as talented and as dominant as they've been over the last 36 months. Mm-hmm. Um, Colorado might be more marketable as, as a team, as a face of the game, as a uh, reason to come watch these things before the playoffs start. I don't know. Um, it just, they were a very, they, they, I guess what I'm trying to say is they captured my attention for two straight months and I'm going to have one eye on Colorado next year. Yeah. And I, I think I, I talked about this a little bit yesterday, Tuesday mornings. I do our, our, uh, our gambling show and you know one of the, the hosts was asked me to kind of just tie a bow on the, on the playoffs and the regular the whole se- the season as a whole and I don't know about you but going into this season I was a little bit skeptical about the ESP just ESPN Turner because I thought NBC did a pretty good job for the most part with their coverage the way ESPN and Turner highlighted McDavid and McKinnon especially but also just most other teams throughout the, mm-hmm. the regular season I think helped this a ton because in, the, in years past, when it was Wednesday night rivalry night on NBC or when it was the Sunday, you know, matinee 1130 game, how many times, Joe, was that Blackhawks, Blues, or East Always, Coast rivalry? Yeah. Every single time. You so, never saw the Oilers. You never saw the Avalanche. You never saw their most future marketable players coming up. This year, what that did, that, that was, what that did what, uh, successfully is that built an understanding in that layman Sunday viewership. What, what we're talking about here is the, the league having to introduce you to these players and give you context to what's about to happen and what's happening and why it means so much and how talented these guys really are. They're not trying to, at this point of the season, speak to the Avs fan who watched 70 games start to finish. Like, they're trying to speak to, hey – this is the future of the game. This mm-hmm. is this player. This is that player. This is what they're well, capable of. This is what their strong suit is. Here are their numbers in respect to history. So yeah. there's so much, there's so much syllabus that needs to happen before you can actually get to the like, Oh, I understand the gravity so, of this moment. You know, I think what I was, and I totally agree with that. I think what I was kind of getting at was the regular season coverage of McDavid McKinnon wasn't just, we're going to throw them on the nine o'clock game late on a Wednesday night. They got these guys in spots, made them marketable, talked about them a ton. So going into mm-hmm. the playoffs, everybody, oh, even the non-casual, even the barely hockey fans know Connor McDavid, but not many of them knew Nathan McKinnon. I feel like going into this, the, the Stanley <laughs> Cup playoffs, they'd expose these guys enough where like even the most casual of hockey fans 
knew that the Colorado Avalanche were young, loaded, fast, and had you know Definitely. this offensive juggernaut. And they knew that Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl were really good. They did a great job of marketing these other teams. Well, obviously, you're always going to market your original six and East Coast teams because there's a lot of eyeballs out there. But I just thought they did a good job of hitting the entire league. So round one in the Western Conference Finals out, you know, in a West Coast series felt like not just some throwaway series that you were learning everybody about. You kind of knew about it, if that makes sense. I thought yeah, they did no, a great I, job with that coverage. I definitely agree with it. It was an enjoyable product. And that's the thing, too, is like the f- we talk about ceilings and floors of players. Hockey, playoff hockey's floor is so high. Like, it's pizza. It's when it's bad, it's good. Like, it's yeah. still um, it's still an outstanding product. Um, I think we got the we got the right champion. I think we got the right matchup. Um, I guess we could dovetail here into a little Hawks talk. New, new, what can you tell me about our new head coach? You know, I, I don't know, uh, Luke. And hockey coaches are weird. I think they're uh, more than any other sport. Maybe baseball sometimes when you hire the obscure bench coach. But, like, most of these hockey coaches are recycled names that everybody knows that, like, has failed at four different spots. Like, uh, Pete DeBoer just got hired again by Dallas. He's been fired like three times in the last five years mm-hmm. or guy who's been pretty good in the AHL. That's going to get his shot. And then that seems like what the Hawks have here in Luke Richardson. He's like a 20 year NHL veteran too. I don't really remember him, uh, which means he was probably that. I mean, he's been retired for a while, which means that I think he was probably, you know, bottom pairing defenseman, middle kind of pairing defenseman guy. But mm-hmm. I did text a friend of the podcast, Dave, who wanted to get to get his thoughts on it. Um, and he gave me a, a glowing review saying they know him really well. But, you know, says guys like playing for him. Very nice guy. Uh, one of the one of the better teammates that, you know, everybody talks about having him in the NHL. And from what I've seen on Twitter, everybody says as a coach in the AHL, players love playing for him. Really smart guy. Um, so it seems like the Blackhawks got a got a, a good hire. This isn't. You know, when Jeremy Colleton got hired, it was, well, he seems like a wonderkin and has been fine with the, with the, you know, with people in Rockford. It wasn't necessarily the glowing review that we're getting here. seems like a glowing review and that's great. And I hope it works out, but we're not going to find out for a little while. Because this year they're going to suck. That's Matt's, Matt's hockey, Matt's Hawks minute, because we give far more than a hockey minute here on the Moose and Roots podcast as we grasp for straws of content. But uh, there's plenty of content out there in the sports world, whether it be the NBA free agency cycle beginning, the drama there, um, the sadness we carry with the White Sox, and the joy that I mask it with by being a fake Yankee fan. I know I'm yeah. sick, I'm gross. It's no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, Sometimes you have to just like make yourself feel good, and that's what you do yeah. when you're rooting for the Yankees out there. I get it. And I've, I've said it many times before here on the podcast, my allegiances have been diminished outside of the Chicago bears. It's all kind of fine. You know, it's yeah. all kind of okay. I think I started drinking a little bit, a bit of bulls Kool-Aid again this past season where like it was bothering me when they weren't playing the way they were supposed to be playing. But like the sock struggling right now is what it is. I, I want them to be, I want them to be where they're supposed to be, which in my head this year was an American League Championship Series. Is that out of the question? Um, I pose that question to answer it myself. I still feel like they're a very capable baseball team with a plus staff. Like, if they can figure it out, it would not surprise me if they're there. Like, it, I, I don't know if I'm still trying to talk myself into them, but they're a buyer's price for me right now to, like, win an American League Championship. Yeah, I, I think what bothers me with it is like you watched, I don't know if you watched last night's game or if you're working last night. And if you, you were working last night, I'm sure you had something with West Coast baseball. But I was not. They no, went on, like they, 
you know, Johnny Cueto pitched really well. Um, and he's actually, I know you said he watched a lot in San Francisco, man. He is just a perfect fourth or fifth starter. He just, he's not he's just great. So surprised he, he has some, he has some very solid efforts and like he, he was great in Houston. He shut them out, but like for the most part, he's been six innings, three runs, six innings, four runs, seven innings, four runs, seven innings, three runs. Like he gives them a chance to win every time he's been out there. And that's all you can ask from a fourth or fifth starter. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, between the veteran presence there. I don't know. It's just like it. I know they don't play the games on paper, but look at it. You have the veteran back end of the staff guy. You have the young burner on the staff. You have the, let me raise my hand and say, I was a little quick to get frustrated with Dylan cease because from the moment that those words left my lips, he's been unbelievable. I believe 13 strikeouts in his last start. Lance Lynn is back vocal Mm -hmm. leader maybe we can't expect what we got out of him last year in terms of like Cy Young competition but he's going to they don't need him to be that yeah no he's going to be what he's going to be even through injury the offense has kind of produced and we've seen flashes of the level at which they could produce what is what is the missing piece right now is it honestly the the manager is it focus is it what is it though those are both Tony La Russa is not all to blame for all of this. I think he makes some puzzling bullpen decisions, but you played sports a lot growing up. And a lot of times there's a saying, you know, that the team kind of takes the, the image of their manager that, you know, the mindset of their manager. And I think there is a lot of just like lax malaise, like lack of a sense of urgency from the manager, because one, he hasn't done this in a while, but two, I think he's just used to managing such good teams with the Cardinals and like his whole career, there there didn't need to be this massive sense of urgency all the time. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that's what this White Sox team needs. I think they're a very talented team, but I think they're a team that's one doesn't know how to win yet because they haven't. And two kind of has that lack of focus. And I just, it's, it's not the right manager at the right time for them. Um, And I, I just, I think they're more than willing to use injuries as excuses. I mean, Tony the other day said they have five guys on like daughter trainers orders to not hustle on routine outs. Like, what is that? I, like, what does that mean? And I, 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 this, I hate this. I, I don't mean to sound like a meatball, but sometimes I'm, you know, I'm a South side baseball fan. You know, if you can't hustle on a routine ground ball, get the, get the hell off the field. I'll find someone who will. Like, yeah. I, 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 and I think, I think I was actually listening to the, the White Sox talk podcast with our, our friend Ryan McGuffey and Chuck Garfine. And I think Eloy earlier in the year was kind of under those orders. And then that's when he hurt himself in Minnesota, but like, okay, like it happened. It's over. Eloy's also injury prone. Like you're costing your team games by not hustling because we, because when you're not hustling on the baseline, that translates to the field. And that's where the White Sox make a lot of errors that tra- that translates everywhere. Their approach at the plate has really been mind boggling. It just seems like they're falling back into old habits and they don't really have anybody there to, you know, crack the whip on them when needed or be the tough guy. They, they just have like the embracing hugs in the locker room and everything's going to go be okay. And it's you yeah. know, just one out of 162 and we're fine. But we're at the point where it's 80 out of 162 and we're not fine right now. So yeah. someone needs to snap something into play. <laughs> It's been 80 out of 162. No, it was the, we're not fine. Like we're not, the, uh, I mean, look at the team right now. Last night was great, but like, they're not fine. This is uh, the, whatever that cartoon is with the guys sitting in the kitchen oh, the, and everything's yeah, on the fire. fire. This is That's fine. That's the White Sox, right? This, this is, is fine. fine. 
That's yeah. Tony right now. This is fine. Um, Except Tony actually know. isn't aware of the house being on fire. He's just saying, yeah, this is fine. We're sitting here. No, um, okay. Let, let me, let me, let me take a chance here and um, maybe step completely out of line. Sure. Because That's you, knew I was hesitant. you knew I was hesitant on the front end of the TLR signing. Then they start doing what they did last year. And I was like, all right, they're responding to him, this and that. We, we get on players and most times we get on managers too about um, body language and the way they communicate. Are we just giving this guy a pass? Cause he's old. Like he, and like, this might be boneheaded too, but he looks like he's ready to go sleep for a week after every single game. Like he looks oh. disheveled. He looks beat up. He looks like he doesn't, he looks like he doesn't have in him what he needs to have in him. Um, oh, Joe, he doesn't be, get a pass here. I don't know if you. But that's. But but I'm saying to like to be engaged at a level that's expected of your manager of a young, interesting, talented team. Like maybe maybe the team's not engaged because the guy at the head of the dugout's not engaged. And I know the I professionals. Totally they agree with to, that. They should be able to self-start, but like just from a from like a energy it takes to get up and put the pants on every day. Or do we have the wrong guy? Yes. Well, I think we 100. Like I've said it. If, the, if Tony LaRusso, well, the Astros might not be a right comparison because I think anybody can manage the Astros to 90 wins. But like if Tony LaRusso was managing a team like the Astros, like they'd be fine. He'd be seen as doing a good job. The White Sox are not a right fit for him because I think the White Sox, at least for now, until you know, at least they learn how to win, know what it's like. They need a little management. You they know? need a little manager, and they, they don't have that voice in the locker room right now. Like I love Jose Abreu. I think he's a very good leader. He's a very much a lead-by-example guy. Um, like they don't really, I think Tim Anderson's kind of like the same way, and I think as much as he is, he's vocal at times, but I don't think he's the rah-rah locker room guy. I think he's yeah. the kind of follow-me kind of guy. They don't really have those guys except for like a Lance Lynn or a Johnny Cueto. But like when it's a pitcher who's out there every five days, it's kind of hard to be that. Like they don't have that guy. And, and mm-hmm. if you don't have that guy, I think you need either A, go get that guy or go get a manager who can be that guy because yeah. that, that guy is important in the locker room. And I think they're not going to fire Tony LaRusso. They're just not. Jerry Reinsdorf won't let it happen. I, he's not going to embarrass his friend, even though he's embarrassing himself right now. Um, this White Sox lineup, kind of what they're missing, in my opinion. Danny Mendick gave it to him a little bit, but he's out of it now. Like, yeah. as talented as they are, how many like how many grinder guys do they have? Not to sound like Meatball Southside two thousand five, but like how many grind out at bat guys do they have? Do you see having these eight, nine, ten pitch at bats a lot? These scrappy yeah. guys who are getting infield singles, beating stuff out. Like they don't have a lot of those guys in the lineup. They have a lot of supremely talented players, but a lot of those guys are just kind of boomer, but like they don't have that spark in the lineup outside of Tim Anderson. And right now, Tim Anderson, I, I still think he's one guy that I understand might be taking a little bit easy because he's coming off a three week hamstring injury. So, okay, that one's fine. But like, they don't really have a lot of those guys and, like, and they don't have a Scott Pitsednik. They don't have an AJ. Like, I, I think you need to find a way to go get some of those guys. And I don't know where they are right now, but that's Rick Hans job, not mine. Nikki Lopez cough, cough, Nikki Lopez. Um, I, love I don't know. I don't know what the team's going. Base. I don't know what this team's going to be, but I will tell you best case scenario. 
Best case scenario is that we're two games over 500. We're a wild card team and we're the quote unquote team you don't want to see right now. Mm -hmm. I think that the White Sox have a lot of team you don't want to see right now potential. If they can round into form, if they can find a groove at the right point of the season, they might be the back end of the tourney. But hey, you know, those bats are hot. Look at their one through four. Like you might not want to see the White Sox. That's the best case scenario, I think. Yeah, and I... I, like that, I think that is the frustrating part about them is there is that talent. Like their best case scenario is that team and a team that can go win a world series. And that's why seeing them just fumble around at home and lose three or four to the Orioles after getting some momentum, being that 500 team, like it's, it's like, it's head scratching. It's maddening. It doesn't make much sense. Um, but the pitching's there. I mean, like Kopech versus Otani tonight, like that's going to be a really good matchup. And, you know, I know Kopech lost in Houston the other night um, when he had on Sunday night baseball, but I thought he actually pitched pretty well. Uh, he's been a guy that's kind of stepped up to the big moment. You mentioned Dylan Cease. I'm still, I'm really impressed by him. I love what I'm seeing from him, but like until that first playoff game where Dylan Cease goes out and shoves, yeah, doesn't yeah. have to get pulled. Like, I love him. I'm really happy that he's doing what he's doing, but I cannot, I cannot fully trust him. Until I see him. Like, he's been better this year in these, those scenarios, not perfect, but better, but like until he does that, until he actually goes out in a playoff situation, whether it's home or away, whatever, and shuts down a good team. I cannot fully be all in on the Dylan Cease train. As good as he's been this year, he should be in the Cy That's, Young conversation, all that. But like, I need to see him do it in, in October. And that's fine, but I also um, I've been having this conversation with the entitled Yankees fans that I'm around, and it's the whole uh, you know some of them it's it's almost like sickening as they scoff at Aaron Judge having the greatest baseball season that we've seen in maybe 20 yeah. years, um, at least at the plate, um, and they're all in that position of fine, perfect, but I want to know what happens when it's second and third. Two outs in the ninth in game five of the ALDS. Like, who is Aaron Judge? Uh-huh. I was like, perfect. That's fine. You can hold. You can hold that reservation, but enjoy this. You know, like enjoy totally what fair. you're seeing. Enjoy every fifth day of Dylan Cease going out and just. Oh yeah, like when he was going down the Blue Jays and was unhittable and striking everybody out. Like, I love watching. It's a lot of fun. So and honestly, fun. yeah. It, you, we haven't seen something like this as Sox fans. It's not that long ago, but like. This is almost Chris Sale-esque, like what he's doing in terms of yeah. strikeouts. He's been that good. And it's yeah. like, I still enjoy watching him. I'm happy to go see him pitch all the time. Love watching him on TV. But like, I still need to need to see it in October before I'm fully 110% Dylan Cease is the bona fide ace of the staff. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we talk about it. It's all based off expectation. The expectation of the White Sox was to be the gold standard of the American League this year. It's not going down that way. It's baseball. Crazy things happen. I don't think it's time to sell the farm. I don't think no. it's time. The Braves to- won the World Series at 83 and 79 last year. Like, yeah, like just, just find it, boys. I, and or whatever it was. I think it's almost, it's almost uh, not to be too romantic about it, but it's almost poetic coming off of last year where we coasted into a, a central division title and then we're half asleep come playoff time. This is mm-hmm. going to take some focus down the stretch if you want to be competitive, and maybe that's the best team to engage this ball club. I don't yeah. know. It's been, it's no doubt been disappointing thus far, but there are silver linings to be found. Yeah, uh, I'm with you, and that was probably the most positive White Sox conversation I've had in quite some time. 
Uh, we're going to try and effort uh, White Sox super producer Ryan McGuffey onto the pod, friend of the pod, recurring guest of the pod. Uh, maybe give it another week. He might call in later on and it might be attached to this podcast, so don't be alarmed if there is a little bonus pod on the back end of this, or we'll get him next week. We can uh, we'll have take some the, point, yeah. We can take the temperature of the White Sox at any point because it's going uh, we're, we're, it's every we'll day, a, people. That's it. It's uh, a new day is coming, hopefully, and we can break out of this fever and uh, feel good about our White Sox. But for now, uh, let's talk a little NBA offseason, Matt, because the dominoes are starting to fall into place, uh, namely Russell Westbrook opting into his $47 million contract, making one of the highest paid players in the league, coming off his least productive season of his career. We knew this was going to happen. He was not getting 47 anywhere else. He was maybe going to get two years, $47 million somewhere else. Um, he's got to opt into this. It handcuffs the Lakers on what they can do with their roster. They're going to look very similar, but the big domino was Kyrie Irving opting into his player option on the tail end of his deal. Um, I don't feel like that saga is over. I don't feel like that drama has been averted. There's going to be drama throughout the season, but this logically tells you that it's going to be KD, Kyrie, and maybe Ben Simmons if he figures he wants to play basketball next season. But a lot of the a lot of the ripple effects that come from this, like the Knicks no longer can have one eye on Kyrie. The Lakers can no longer have one eye on Kyrie. That means the Lakers are locked into who they are and the Knicks are going to go overpay for Jalen Brunson. Um, that <laughs> means that there's no three team deal to be probably had with the Bulls, Lakers and the Nets to bring KD to Chicago. It's sort of the Kyrie domino makes things a lot more cut and dry from where I'm sitting. Yeah. It does. So it's one year left on that deal. Like this, the, the abnormal, it was last year of a contract. I believe, yes, last year he was in a contract year. I believe this. I believe it's one option. I can pull it up right now. Okay. I think that after this season. Um, so well, I guess I basically all we did was delay the dominoes until next season. Yeah, but like, here's the thing too: contracts in the NBA are suggestions at this point. Player, star players can like go where they want when they want. Um, even to a further extent of the NFL, you can say, I want to go here, buy out my, look at what happened with, um, with John Wall. John Wall is likely going to yeah, be on the Clippers like, because reach a buyout agreement and then you're fine. Buy me out. I'm going over there. Um, or move me. If you're a player of Kyrie's ilk, move me and they're going to get a haul back for him. I, I just don't know. Yes. He's an unrestricted free agent next off season. So you're looking at one more season of KD and Kyrie and it proved to not be enough last year. Obviously, they're hurt the whole time. Uh, they play a total of, what, 13 games, 11 games together, something yeah. like that. Kyrie's away from the team with personal stuff. Um, we never really got to see the fullest form of them, and we never got to see Ben Simmons even put the jersey on. So will they be good next year? I don't know. Um, but I was hoping that it all came apart so KD could be an asset on the open market. Now, maybe could that's you the see case that next, next offseason? Uh, we could maybe see that next offseason. Yeah, because like um, I, if I the Bulls come back this year and have like a like a healthy season and play well, and pro I mean this team, I still don't think is an NBA championship team. Now, anything can happen in these NBA playoffs, like we've kind of seen. But like, if they're a team that wins a couple playoff series and KD and Kyrie just spiral out of control in Brooklyn, I would have to feel like the Bulls would be a top, if not the top, contender to go out and get KD because he's also spoken very highly of Chicago. Yeah, and um, I think that. I think, and I was thinking about it from this standpoint the other day. I think that Kevin Durant would be the perfect player for Chicago because he doesn't, he won, he's not afraid of the 
major media criticism uh-huh. and two he is driven by it he engages with it it is not a detriment to his focus it puts him into further focus sometimes. I think Chicago would be perfect for him from that standpoint because he would be held to not only a standard of the media, but he's also one of those historians of the game. He knows what basketball means here. He know, he grew up through the 90s, understanding that this is where basketball lived and to put that jersey on is something special and to win here makes you immortal. To win, if he can say... Like, just put it in the framework of the places that he's been in his career. KD will will forever be um, immortalized in Oklahoma City because what he did there, not even winning a championship, but what he did for that community, what he did for basketball and OKC at what the time was a franchise in its infancy. He legitimized them. He went to Golden State. He will forever be the ancillary piece to those championships. Yes, he was the NBA Finals MVP for both that they won, but... That was Steph's team. That was Draymond's team. That was the that was Clay's team. That was the strife that led to the breakup. So I don't think he's ever going to. It's going to be like, yeah, let's celebrate KD. He was on those teams, not yeah. he was those teams. If Kevin Durant came to Chicago and won, there would be a statue. Like yes. that's 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 the level of star player wins. Let's say two championships, and you get a statue. Star player wins two championships in a five year span. You're going in the rafters. You're getting a statue. You, you're living here for the rest of your life, at least during the summer, because you know what it means to be celebrated as a champion in Chicago. Katie's perfect for that. He is the perfect person to embrace this fan base and be embraced by it. I, I just, it makes so much sense. And I know it's me just trying to talk myself into having a star player here, but we've said it time and again, time and again, time and again, since D Rose got hurt, since it was over. And even throughout that, MVP run and playoff runs of, you know, can you win with him being the number one? But the question has always been, who is the star that's going to take us to the mountaintop? Cause you have, that's the only way to do it now. And no disrespect to Zach Levine, no disrespect to DeMar DeRozan, no disrespect to the guys on this roster, but all that this roster is missing is that guy. Kevin yep. Durant is that he's that guy, pal. He's that guy, pal. He is that guy, pal. You, you've talked me into it, and I've, I've kind of started letting myself get excited when the Kyrie, you know, story leaked like last week that if he's gone, KD could explore other options, and I'm kind of all in on it, and I'm kind of fully bought in on it happening next year. It's, it's going to happen. I'm just I'm manifesting it. We're manifesting it. I, I, need, I need it to happen because, I, you know, I have a rule that, like, you just don't buy jerseys at this point. Like, unless they're, like, cool hockey sweaters. Like, I'm not yeah. wearing a jersey. I'm buying a Kevin Durant jersey and wearing it with no undershirt. And you're which not one, Which color? Black, red. white, or red? Red. Okay. And then, like, once we're... I might 50, get the black one. We're going to be 50 and 8. I'll get the black pinstripe mm. one. Oh. Yeah. The black like pinstripe that. one, because you know they'll, you know they'll, uh, they'll start throwing some retro looks and city connects, you know, just but 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 the key here is no undershirt, no undershirt under the back. I, I have to wear an undershirt. I'm, I'm an undershirt. No, 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 no undershirt. No one, Joe, Keep no, no one wants to see that with me. Um, Matt, I think I think that's uh, a great way to tie a bow on this one for the people. Leave them, yeah, you know, really wanting more. NBA offseason is the gift that keeps on giving, so I'm sure we will double back when the uh, when the there's going to be big news every week, whether or not it's actually people moving or rumors. There's going to be stuff talked about every week there. Uh, Matt, that being said, I think we've covered our bases here on the Most Wins Podcast, episode 259, Life Beyond the Championships. I guess mm-hmm. we call this series that we're about to embark on, which is also called the Mailbag Series. So get in it, get on it, send them our way. But for now, 
He is Matt Rooney. I am Joe Musso. Matt, say goodbye to the people. Later. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. Chicken on the stick was phenomenal.